Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm the host of this podcast, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. I uh, have a heartburn that I want to share on this podcast. It's something that's kind of been brewing in my mind and my heart and things that I've been a little bit bothered by, and I just feel like I need to let it off my, my chest and maybe address this on a podcast. And here's the issue. What I'm seeing today in the evangelical world, especially among younger pastors and younger leaders in this younger generation, is this whole idea of an abuse of what we would call Christian liberty. Uh, you often see sometimes these younger pastors using cuss words from the pulpit or using inappropriate language or bringing a secular media into Christian worship services and playing gangster rap lyrics or other types of things in an actual worship service. People flaunting the fact that they can uh, drink all these different types of alcoholic drinks and uh, just all these different podcasts related to Christian freedom. And... I want to address it because I think that the issue in our culture today is that we do not have a shortage of aberrant, sinful behavior among evangelical Christians, and we don't need to be giving Christians more ammunition, or, or the enemy more ammunition, to be tempting Christians to go off the rails into sinful behavior. And so the question becomes, what can a Christian expose him or herself to? What type of behavior is actually crossing the line? Uh, should a Christian go see Fifty Shades of Grey? I remember last uh, winter when that movie came out, I wrote a newspaper uh, article about that, warning our, our community not to go watch it. And um, I remember my wife, who is a school teacher, and a lot of her school teacher friends were so excited that the movie was coming out, and they, they couldn't wait to go see it. Um, and, and the issue at that time were just so many Christian women getting into uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. And, and so the question is, should, should a Christian go see that? What about pornography? What about playing Grand Theft Auto? What about um, exposing ourselves to all types of, of media? What about using cuss words? What about uh, drinking alcohol? All these different things. And so a lot of times we might get accused of being legalistic. Oh, you're just being legalistic. It's a matter of preference. It's a matter of taste. It's a, you know, I have a stronger conscience than you. And so I, I can handle these things. And so I just think that it's it's very concerning, this younger generation, in this whole attitude of how far can I go and not break a Christian rule or whatever. And I think that's asking the wrong question. So that's one aspect of what I'm seeing is this whole flaunting of Christian liberty, abusing Christian liberty, uh, accusing others who want to hold to standards of, of biblical holiness as being legalistic. That's one thing that I'm seeing. The other thing that you see, and it, and it piggybacks on this, is this whole idea that we will do whatever it takes to reach a lost culture. You may hear that term a lot. You go to an evangelism conference, you go to a missions conference, and maybe even your, your church uses that terminology. We'll do whatever it takes to reach lost people. And I don't have a problem at all with reaching lost people. The Bible tells us to share the gospel. The, the Bible tells us to obey the Great Commission. And so there's nothing wrong with reaching lost people. What I have a problem with is the statement, whatever it takes. Because when you start using that terminology, whatever it takes, 
then you can open yourselves to, to, to dabbling with unbiblical methodology. And I will say this, most of the methodology that you see practiced in churches today stems from bad theology. If you have a bad theology about the sufficiency of the scriptures, about the holiness uh, of Christian character, uh, about God's prescribed method of lifestyle and of worship, then you're going to have unbiblical practices. And so that's what we see. We see a lot of churches adopting unbiblical practices as, as a way to reach the lost. And so the, the motive, I don't, I don't um, impugn their motivation. They want to reach lost people. But when you start using the terminology, whatever it takes, you get on a slippery slope of, be, of, of opening yourself to, to, to doing ungodly things in an attempt to reach lost people. For example, um, maybe you go to um, a, a, a porn convention in Las Vegas and, and hang around porn stars as a way to reach the porn industry, or maybe you go hang out at a bar and get drunk with your friends as a way to to reach uh, your friends that are that are drinking, or maybe as a church, as a pastor, you want to uh, bring in a certain type of music or entertainment into the Christian worship service as a way to make it uh, appeal uh, relevant to this culture. And so there's this whole idea: we've got to be relevant. We've got to be um, just open to using all different types of of methodologies as a way to reach lost people. And here's the underlying assumption that these people have. And, I, and this is what I think happens. I think people think, you know, this world's ungodly. This this world is, um, you know, they, they're not going to buy Christianity. It, it doesn't seem real to them. Uh, it's going to be offensive to them. And so we've got to somehow water it down. We've got to somehow make it more palatable so that people will actually accept it. And so if we just um, compromise here and there and make it comfortable and make it relevant, then we'll have a better chance of reaching lost people. And the Bible's the exact opposite. The Bible talks about the offense of the gospel. The Bible talks about how you're going to shine as lights in, in, in a world that doesn't understand the gospel. And so what I want to do in this podcast is really just cover a, a few passages of Scripture that de deal with this issue of personal holiness, of contextualization, of exposing ourselves to different forms of entertainment, and just how do we as Christians navigate this issue. And so I want to start with the words of Jesus in John chapter 17. This is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just hours before he's to be betrayed by Judas. And he's praying to the Father, and he's praying some very specific things. And in this particular passage we're going to look at, he's praying specifically for his disciples. Now one thing we need to understand about the Gospel of John is that the word sent, um, apostello in the Greek, is used almost I think it's about 40 times it's used in the Gospel of John. And it, it's all used really to talk about Jesus being sent on a mission from his Father. He's sent from his Father to earth to accomplish the mission of fully obeying God's moral law and thought, word, and deed, and also in going to the cross. And so Jesus always does what pleases the Father. His food is to do the will of the Father, to accomplish the Father's work. And that involves perfectly obeying God's moral law in thought, word, and deed, and going to the cross to die for our sins. That's the mission Jesus was sent on. But and as he's getting ready to die on the cross, and, and then he's going to rise again and ascend back to the Father, he also turns to his disciples and says, Listen, guys, I'm sending you out into the world on a mission. 
You're being sent, apostello. You're being sent out into the world to preach the gospel, to obey the Great Commission by making disciples of all nations, by preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, going in the power of the Holy Spirit to plant churches, to evangelize. I'm sending you. Now the question then becomes, if Jesus is sending us, by extension, he's sending his early apostles out, and we see that in the book of Acts, but by extension, I think he's still sending us out into the world. Uh, the, the, the tension becomes, okay, if we're being sent out into the world, how much of the world are we supposed to be a part of? It's the old adage, you're, you're, you're in the world, but not of the world. And so as being sent on a mission by Jesus into the world, we're going to have attention. How much of the world is going to influence us? How much is the devil, the enemy, going to tempt us? How do we handle being sent out into the world with all of its temptations, with all of its allurements, with all of its darkness? And Jesus gives us the answer in John 17, verses 15 through 19. Let's read this. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, I'm sending them out into the world. I, I, they can't escape the world. I don't want them to leave the world. They need to be in the world. They need to be salt. They need to be light. They need to be evangelists. They need to go into the world to share the gospel, to plant churches, to be uh, the, the church, to be a godly influence in this world. But I know, Jesus says, that as they're going out in the world, the evil one is going to attack. So, so, so Jesus prays that they would be kept from the evil one. But it's very important what he says in verse 17. Sanctify them, set them apart as holy, sanctify them in the truth. And you may say, well, what is the truth? Well, Jesus defines it for us. Your word is truth. And notice the wording that Jesus says there. Your word is truth. Jesus could have said, Father, your word is true. And we would have nothing wrong with that statement. God's word is true. But there's a lot of things that are true. For example, I'm six foot two. That's true. I have blonde hair and blue eyes. That's true. I'm married to Don. That's true. I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. That's, that's true. Those are all things that are true. But when Jesus says your word is truth, the, the construction in the original language there in the Greek really conveys the idea that God's word is truth. The truth. The embodiment of all truth. Really with a capital T. It, it's the truth. And so we have to start from the very beginning with an authority, the authority of the Bible. You see, here's the issue in the evangelical world today. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was a battle for the Bible. Um, it was called the conservative resurgence in Southern Baptist life, the denomination I'm in. But it was really, really in the mid-70s with Walt Kaiser and J.I. Packer and others, R.C. Sproul, uh, John MacArthur came together and, and, a, and a host of other leaders um, drafted the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy in the late 70s. And it really codified and, and, and explained the whole idea that the Bible is inerrant. 
The Bible is without errors in the original manuscripts. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is inspired. And so that battle was waged and fought and, and really won back in the 70s and 80s. And so nowadays, most evangelical Christians are not going to balk at the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, that it's inerrant, that it's inspired. Um, but here's where, the, here's where the issue comes into play. Uh, two issues related to the scriptures that I think people struggle with today. Number one, they struggle with the authority of the Bible. They will give lip service to its inspiration. They will give lip service to it being God's word without errors. They will give lip service to that, but they won't bow under its authority. They do not see the scripture as the ultimate authority to dictate to them how to live and what to believe. And so they may give lip service to the scriptures being God's word, but they don't live under its authority in everyday life. And so I think that's a, a, the first problem. But I think in church life, among pastors and among those that are, that are Christian leaders, there is a lack of really f understanding or a lack of confidence in the sufficiency of scripture. You see, the sufficiency of scripture says that the word of God is profitable for teaching, for training, for correcting, for reproof, and all the things that 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 tell us. The Bible is sufficient, is the only sufficient rule to dictate to us how we should do ministry, how we should live our lives. And so uh, there, there's, a, there's a lack of confidence in the authority of the Bible, and there's a lack of confidence in the sufficiency of the Bible. And when those two things creep into the life of a pastor, a leader, a church, an individual Christian, you are beginning to go down a slippery slope where you're in the world, but your authority is not the truth. You're not being sanctified by the truth. You're being influenced by the world. And so Jesus here from the very beginning says there's a tension. We can't be taken out of the world. Obviously, uh, we, that, we can't be hermits. We can't hunker down and live um, in some monastery somewhere. We, we can't live in a bubble. We can't escape being in the world. We, we work with lost people. We have lost family members. We're, we're, we're in a world system where, where, where we can't escape. And Jesus is very realistic about that. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. They need to be in the world. But here's the thing. Sanctify them in the truth. What's the truth? Your word is truth. Peter echoes this whole idea in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 15. He says, prepare Preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Two things in this passage of scripture that Peter really lays forth for us. Uh, in verse 15, there's the command. God is holy. This is, goes all the way back to, to Leviticus. God is holy. So, Christian, you also be holy. And then he qualifies it in all your conduct, in the way that you live your life, in the totality of everything about you. Be holy. Live in holiness. And then he contrasts that. In verse 14, he says, listen, there's a contrast. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, as a lost person, before you were regenerated, before the, the God saved you by his sovereign grace, you were enslaved to former passions. 
You were in ignorance. You were blinded in your sin. You were dead in your transgressions. And, and Peter says, listen, don't go back to that way of life. Don't be conformed. Don't be, don't be molded by what used to define you, that former ignorance, those former passions. And so here's the problem with this whole abuse of Christian liberty that a lot of people do. When we see people asking the question, well, how far can you go? And, and, and compromising on all these things, what they're doing is they're putting people right back, Christians especially, they're, they're encouraging them to go right back to their former ignorance, to go right back to be conformed to their passions of their flesh, as opposed to leading them to holiness and being sober-minded and being, being ready for the return of Christ. You know, one of the issues that is really plaguing our culture right now is just the whole issue of sexual confusion. Um, sexual identity issues, uh, the homosexual movement, uh, just the rampant adultery, um, with the Ashley Madison hack that happened earlier, later in you know late late in the summer, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey I mentioned earlier, uh, tons of, of dating and, and websites, um, internet pornography, just the rampant um, teenagers having sex before marriage, just just everywhere you turn, uh, there's just our, our culture is immersed in rampant sexual immor immorality, and, and and Christians become. I think, inoculated to this and, and become immune to this and don't really realize what the Scripture teaches about this. And so sometimes you have pastors from the pulpit uh, telling dirty jokes, cussing, uh, sexual innuendo. Uh, you've got this whole idea that you can expose yourself to all manner of sexual immorality. You can expose yourself to pornography. Hey, if, a, if, a, if a married couple is, is committed to each other and, 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 home, and pornography helps them in their marriage, why don't they, you know, there's nothing wrong with a the, with the married couple sitting down and watching porn in their home. Um, there's nothing wrong with a, a married couple going together to see Fifty Shades of Grey because if it doesn't bother their conscience, they, you know, it's not a big deal. Oh, that attitude is so prevalent, especially among Christians. Now, I'm not talking about the lost people out there. I'm talking about Christians. And I want to, to, to share with you some shocking words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, 3 through 12. I don't know if many Christians that remember reading this, if they have read it, but are they living under the authority of it? Let's listen to what Paul says. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. I think the NIV says, let there not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Then he goes on to say, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He says that stuff's out of place. Filthy talk, crude joking, immaturity, uh, coarse jokes, all, all this type of um, language. And again, it really bothers me sometimes the language that I hear pastors use, even on, especially on certain podcasts, certain YouTube clips, um, certain blogs, where, where they're trying to be hip, they're trying to be cool, they're trying to be relevant, uh, they're trying to, to act like that they, they've got it together and they're not, they're not a prude or they're not out of touch with culture. And so they're just going to use the language of the culture. And Paul says here it's out of place. Sexual immorality must not even be named among them. Then he goes on to say in verse 5, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. Notice what he says. Do not become partakers with them. And we're going to talk about this in a few moments. Paul does not say, hey, listen, don't be their friend. Don't go out of the world. Don't associate with them. Don't um, 
you know, you have to work with them. He uses a very specific word there. He says, do not become partakers. Do not join them in that behavior. Do not let their behavior define who you are as a Christian. Do not be partakers. Then he goes and takes it one step further. In verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. He says, listen, here, there's the contrast again. Just like what we saw in Peter. Paul's saying, listen, at one time, formally, your life before you were a Christian, you were darkness. And it's interesting terminology Paul uses there. He doesn't say you were in darkness, but he says you were darkness. But now, but now, it's interesting when you go back and read especially um, Paul's writings, he always has a but now. It's, it's a strong adversative in the original language that contrasts two, two things usually in a sentence to, to show a sharp contrast. He says, listen, you used to be, your former way of life was darkness. You were enslaved to sin. You were living for your former passions. But now, strong contrast, you're in the light. So therefore, because you are changed, because you're transformed, because you're born again, because you're a new creation in Christ, walk as children of light. Now that word walk in the Greek text is a very um, common word that Paul uses all throughout the book of Ephesians, especially the latter half, peripateo. It really means lifestyle. Let this be your manner of lifestyle. Let this, let this characterize who you are in the totality of your habits and as your lifestyle is an ongoing way of life. Walk as children of light. Now, in verse 11, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Expose them. Take no part in them. Do not become partakers with them. Paul is saying here, listen, there is a line that you do not cross. You do not let filthiness come out of your mouth. You do not even talk about sexual morality. You do not become partakers with them. You actually expose it, and it's shameful for you to even speak of these things. It's amazing how crude and crass and open people are in talking about very intimate details of their life. Things that should not be spoken of out loud. Things that, that you should not be sharing in a public forum. Language you should not be using. Sexual references you should not be using. And Paul here is very clear. I mean, you just read this passage at face value and you can't argue with it. You, your mouth should be stopped. You should be silenced. The verdict has come down from the Word of God. Do not become partakers. Do not do it. Walk in holiness. Walk as children of light. And that's difficult because here's what often happens. We think that when we do that, we're going to be weird. We're going to be strange. We're not going to be relevant to the culture. We're not going to win people to Christ. We're just going to be weird. And the answer is yes. Yes. Where did you get in the Bible that if you live like a Christian, you're not going to be weird? You're not going to be different. You're not going to be distinct. I mean, going all the way back to Exodus chapter 19, when God told the Israelites, you're going to be a nation that's holy. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The, the, the pagan nations around you are going to look at you and wonder, who in the world are you? You are so distinct. You're so different. You have all these different dietary laws and all of these different cleansing laws and all these different laws that mark who you are to, 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 to separate you as holy from all the nations. You're to be a light to the Gentiles. You're to be God's separate people. That was God's identity for the Old 
Old Testament people, and it carries into the New Testament people, especially in 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter uses that same terminology to refer to us as the church. You're a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests belonging to God. And so all throughout the scriptures, we are distinct. We're different. We're going to stand out. We're not to look like, to act like, to smell like, to be partakers of the world. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Um, he says in verses 15 and 16, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain, or labor in vain. Paul says, listen, you are going to be in a crooked and twisted generation. You live in the midst of that. I mean, that, that is so timely. Do we not live in a crooked and twisted and perverse, confused, ungodly generation? Paul says, hey, listen, Philippians, you're living in that same thing as well. We, we live in a crooked and twisted generation, but as true believers, what, what, do we, what do we appear to this crooked and twisted generation? What are we supposed to be doing? He says, you shine as lights in the world, echoing what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount of letting our light so shine before men. We're to shine in the darkness. And what's the darkness going to do? When you shine in the darkness, when you shine, you're going to stand out. You're going to be distinct. You're going to expose. You're going to be different. You're going to be holy. The twisted and crooked generation is going to is going to wonder what you're doing. And they're going to backlash because you're exposing their darkness. But notice what Paul says. Here's how you do it. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Echoes what Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Hold fast to the word of life, holding fast to the authority of scripture. How do you shine as lights? You hold fast to the word of scripture. And the twisted and crooked generation is not going to like that. Nowhere in any of these texts that we've looked at so far does the Bible say, listen, try to be relevant. Try to be as close as you can to the world. Try to do whatever it takes to reach people because really you just need to be relevant. You don't need to be seen as, as weird. Uh, you, you, want to, you want to break down barriers so that you can uh, not be so offensive. And so we don't see those things. Now, I'm not against contextualization to some extent. We have our worship services in English so that people can understand them. We sing songs that people can sing together congregationally. We, we, um, you know, we have a nursery so that you know crying babies can be in a nursery. So, so there's some things that we contextualize in order to to help the worship service. But I think that what we're seeing today is an over contextualization in order to quote unquote reach lost people. And oftentimes where people go, especially pastors and ministry leaders and churches, where they go to justify doing whatever it takes to reach a lost culture, even if it means breaking God's moral standards or breaking God's law or, or compromising on the gospel and doing all these uh, manner of ungodly things in the name of trying to reach people, they go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I think that they abuse and misinterpret this passage of Scripture. They read what they want to read in it, and they don't read Paul's entire statement, Paul's entire argument, Paul's entire flow of thought. So let's read together 1 Corinthians 9, 19-27, and let's, let's see what Paul says. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. A lot of people will use this quotation, um, I've become all things to all people that I might, but by some means, save some. I become all. We need to become all things to all people. And they'll just quote that verse. We need to become all things to all people. So that means we can do whatever it takes. We can we can compromise here and there. Uh, we can do ungodly behavior. We can bring things into the Christian worship service that are unbefitting. Uh, we can we can we can do whatever it takes. We can do all things. I, we need to act like the, the culture. We need to be relevant to the culture. We need to be contextualized to the culture so that we can win the culture. I I, I need to be all things to all people. And they just quote that verse out of context. But I want to show you two things in this particular passage of Scripture. Then I'm going to go on to show you Paul, the rest of Paul's argument. But I wanted to show you something in verse 21. Paul says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Notice what Paul says. He's not outside God's law. He's under the law of Christ. Now you may say, well, what is the law of Christ? What, what, what does it mean to be under the law of Christ? Does that just mean that there's no more law anymore? When you become a Christian, God's moral law is thrown out the window, and, and you know, we're under, we're under grace, not under the law. And people will, will quote that, and they don't really understand what they're saying. Let me be very clear about the role of the law of Christ in the life of a Christian. There are three uses of the law. This, this really comes from Calvin and his arguments, but I think it's, for the most part, I think it's helpful. Three uses of the law. And when we talk about the law, we're talking about the moral law of God. We're talking about the law that was codified in the Ten Commandments. And we're talking about God's moral, ethical law that he has mandated that all believers and all people, really everywhere, are to submit themselves under. And so when you think about the Ten Commandments, you think about lying and murdering and adultery and obeying parents and, and stealing and coveting and, and Sabbath-keeping and and taking the Lord's name in vain, and, and proper ways to worship, all of the moral law of God that is again recapitulated by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in the pastoral, or in, the, in all of the epistles, really, the letters in the in the in the New Testament, you see the moral law of God talked about all all the time. So let's talk about the three uses of the law. Use number one is God has given His law just number one as a way to make sure that our society is not in a in a state of anarchy. God has established governing authorities, and he's established the moral law really as a way to keep, keep society in check. And so people aren't stealing and murdering and killing, and so we've got a moral law that governs society so that there's not mayhem and chaos and that there's order in God's common grace. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law is the law is meant to show us our need for a Savior that we cannot keep it. The law serves as a mirror. You look at the Ten Commandments and you realize as you look at that that you, to the core of your being, are an adulterer at heart. You're a liar. You're a thief. You're a Sabbath breaker. You're a blasphemer. You're disobedient to your parents. You don't worship God the way you should. You're, you're a coveter. And so the law is there to show us that we in no way can keep the law, 
We are dead in our sins and trespasses. We violated God's law. We are guilty. We're accountable. We're culpable. We stand condemned before the law of God, and, and we've not kept his law, and so we are guilty, and we deserve hell. We deserve punishment, and the only way for us to be in God's right standing is through the obedience of another, Jesus. Jesus saves us by his keeping of the law. You see, in the active obedience of Christ, he perfectly kept God's moral law and thought, word, and deed completely. And, and, and thus, because he did that, that law keeping of Jesus, when we become a Christian, that's imputed or credited to us as if we had perfectly kept the law. And therefore, God can justify us. God can declare us not guilty on the basis of Christ's keeping of the law that's imputed to us as a gift and we stand in the position of being righteous being accepted before God with a righteousness that comes outside of ourselves and so the first, the second use of the law is to show us that we can't save ourselves that we are guilty we are accountable we're toast without Jesus but then there's the third use of the law that is the moral law of God is still binding upon the Christian after they've come to faith in Christ the law does not earn our salvation. The law does not um, get us saved, but the law is to be kept after we become a Christian as a way to live out our sanctification, as a way to live out our obedience to Christ. And so when I hear Christians say, well, we're not under the law, which use of the law are you talking about? We're not under the law as a means of salvation. Never could the law save. Never can you be justified by the law. But we're under the law of Christ in the sense that as Christians, as regenerated Christians who are called to be holy, we must live by the moral law of God as our guide for living, as our lifestyle, and to obey that. And so Paul says, listen, I'm still under the law of Christ. So even in doing all things to all people, I'm not going to do anything that violates the law of Christ, that violates God's moral law. So that's number one in that passage of Scripture. But then in, in verse 23, he says, I do all for the sake of the gospel. Now, today in today's culture, there's, there's a lot of um, confusion about what the gospel is. It seems like everything's a gospel issue. This or that's a gospel issue. And so we kind of throw the word gospel around uh, and make it very loose. Everything and anything can be the gospel. The gospel, in a nutshell, is the death of burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact and his command for all people to repent and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. At its bare bones minimum. Now we can talk about the implications of the gospel and how it fleshes out, but, but, but ultimately at its core level the gospel is the death, the historical reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his command for all people everywhere to repent and believe in the gospel for the forgiveness of sins, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And one of the aspects of the gospel that's often lost in culture today, especially evangelical culture, is the aspect of repentance. You take repentance out of the, the equation, you lose the gospel. So what is repentance? Well, repentance means that you call people to recognize two things about themselves. Repentance really means a change of, of mind, it's really like the, the Greek word there, metanoia, it means it's a change of, of mind, but it leads to an actual change of lifestyle. And here's what repentance means. You repent of who you are, and you repent of what you've done. You see, repentance starts with understanding first and foremost that you are a sinner at the core of your being. It's your identity. You are depraved. 
to the core of your being. You've inherited guilt and sin from Adam. You are dead in trespasses and sins. You stand condemned, accountable, helpless, hellbound, hopeless before the living God. And you've got to recognize your sinful condition. And repenting means I confess and realize that to the core of my being I'm a sinner and that I stand condemned. But then you repent from sins. You turn from those sins. You, you walk in newness of life. And so when you preach the gospel, you've got to urge people to repent. And so here's the problem with cussing pastors. Here's the problem with this whole issue of contextualization, doing all things to all people. My question is, are you preaching repentance? Because if you're doing things just like the world, if you're acting just like the world, if you're compromising just like the world, where's the repentance? Where's the change? Where's the difference? Where is the holiness? Where is the shining as lights in the world? Where is that? And so Paul says, listen, I do all things for the gospel. And so that has to mean, based upon the totality of Paul's teachings and, and the rest of the New Testament teaching, especially Jesus. Remember Jesus in, in Mark chapter 1? I think it's verse 15 and 16. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. How does the gospel of Luke end in Luke 24? The very last words of Jesus are, to, to his disciples to go into all the world in the power of the Holy Spirit and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You look at Peter at Pentecost, he preaches repentance. You look at Paul, he preaches repentance. You look at Stephen, he preaches repentance. You look all throughout the scriptures. Part and parcel of the gospel is repentance. And so if there's no repentance, if there's no change, if there's no distinction, if there's no turning from sin, if there's no demonstrable, concrete, evidential difference in a lifestyle, that's distinctly different, you're not doing it for the sake of the gospel. Now, we could just stop right there and say, okay, there's those two things. Paul does everything um, for the sake of the gospel, and he's under the law of Christ. But Paul goes on to, 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 to um, clarify an issue that's very real, that could possibly happen. Right in the context of doing all things for all people, so that by all means he might save some, he goes on to say this in verses 24 through 27. Paul says, Do you not know then in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Do you hear Paul's urgency there? Do you hear the danger that Paul says could happen to himself? Paul says, listen, I know there's a danger. If, if I become all things to all people, there's a danger in what would happen to my own soul. If I don't um, watch myself, if I don't practice self-control, if I don't discipline myself just like an athlete does, then what he says is, I could actually be preaching to others, I could be contextualizing, I could be I'm engaging in all types of activity to try to reach them and cross those boundaries. And he says, after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. He could actually disqualify himself as a pastor through his crossing those lines, through his going over those boundaries, through him violating the law of Christ, through him not holding fast to the gospel of repentance. So Paul says, listen, there's a check there is a boundary on this. There is a, <clears throat> excuse me, there is a, a, um, a, a check, I guess is the best word on this. Any type of contextualization, any type of, I'm, we're going to do whatever it takes to reach lost people. Three things here. 
Number one, if it violates the law of Christ, don't do it. Number two, if it violates the gospel of repentance, don't do it. And number three, make sure that you are being self-controlled, that in leading others, you don't disqualify yourself. And Paul understood that danger. Now, Hebrews 12, 14 says this, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Very interesting passage of Scripture. It says, without holiness, you're not going to see the Lord. Now, what does that mean? What does it really mean that without holiness, you won't see the Lord? I think there's two ways you can take this verse, and I think both of them, uh, if, you, if you look at the whole scope of Scripture, I think both of them, these views are, are supportive of that. I think in a sense, it is talking about your final salvation in seeing the Lord in heaven, seeing Jesus face to face on that final day, being granted access into heaven based upon positional holiness. There, there's a positional holiness that happens when you're saved. God sets you apart as holy. God saves you by grace. And in that grace, he positionally sets you apart as holy. So it's talking about your position as a child of God, as accepted, as a justified Christian. But I think there's also the sanctification aspect of this to where you are progressively growing in holiness as a lifestyle. And what the writer of Hebrews may be saying here is that, listen, if you're not growing in holiness, if you're not living a lifestyle of holiness, it's going to be really hard for you to see the Lord in the sense that the intimacy, understanding God's will, growing in fellowship with God. And just think about the implication. How close are you to the Lord? How open are your eyes to Jesus? How intimate are you with the Savior when you're not walking in holiness? When you're not walking in holiness, you, you don't really want to see the Lord. You want to see the things of the world. You want, you're wrapped up in the things of ungodliness, and it's, it's a lot more difficult for you to see the Lord. And so as a Christian leader, as one who is leading, as a pastor, if you're doing things in your church or you're doing things in your ministry and you're doing things that are not leading people to see the Lord, then you're not leading them to holiness. If you're leading them to unholiness, then it's going to make it very difficult for them to see the Lord. Now, one last passage of Scripture I want us to look at um, is, is a very stark passage of Scripture that I think a lot of people don't read also. Um, and, and it's the whole doctrine of separation, the whole doctrine of, of holiness and separation. And um, I want to clarify this because I think there's some misunderstanding, but listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what part... What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, that I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. There's a lot in this passage of Scripture talking about partnerships, fellowships, 
accord, all these words that talk about intimate relationships with non-believers, and then cleansing ourselves of every defilement that would bring us to holiness and separating ourselves. And so, what is Paul really saying here? So it may be a little bit confusing, but what does it not mean? Okay, I don't think Paul's saying, "Hey, don't ever hang around non-Christian friends. Don't don't have lost people in your life. Don't treat people as second-class citizens. Don't act violently or hateful towards people. Uh, don't befriend someone who may be different from you. Don't obey the the Great Commission. Don't retreat into a bunker just hoping somehow the culture is going to change. I, I, don't engage the the culture anymore. Don't don't be salt and light. That's not what he's saying there. The, the wording he uses there is very important. He, he has words like partnership, fellowship, um, accord. They're words that, reply, that imply intimate relationship, close fellowship, lifestyle issues. And so what Paul's saying is really your lifestyle, your partnerships, your deepest relationships, the way that you act, the way that you live, should not have anything to do with a lost world. Now you can share the gospel with them, you can reach them by, by, by preaching the gospel to them, but don't cross the line of having partnerships with them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, just, just as a side note, it's an interesting thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses the issue in the church of incest. There was an incestuous relationship in the church. The people were kind of bragging about it. They, they weren't bothered by it. They were just kind of flaunting it. And Paul's heartbroken and says, listen, you guys got to assemble together, exercise church discipline, hand this, this brother over to the destruction of his flesh so that he will repent and come back. And Paul goes on to talk about the serious nature of, of sexual sin in the church. And he goes on to give some teaching that I think, again, uh, Christians don't oftentimes listen to. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So Paul's saying, listen, you can't, you'd have to go out of the world to not be around lost people. Same thing Jesus said. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. It's inevitable. You're going to rub shoulders with lost people. You're going to work with lost people. You're going to have friendships with lost people. You're going to have lost friends and family members. You're going to have lost people all around you. But Paul says, listen, here's the difference. You're not to associate or to have partnerships or to have fellowship or to have deep relationships with a brother a Christian, one who bears the name of brother or sister, if they're guilty of these sins. He says not even to eat with such a person. And so Paul draws a line and says, listen, when it comes to lost people, they're going to act that way. Now, I'm not excusing the behavior of lost people. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that they can't, they can't help it or they're not accountable or they're not morally culpable um, and giving them a free, free pass. But what I'm saying is this, lost people act out of their nature. What is their nature? They are dead in sin. They are to pray. They are lost. They've got dead, stony hearts. They are enslaved to their passions. They are blinded by Satan. And so the way they live is a result of who they are. They are enslaved. And so the choices they make and the lifestyle they make is going to be ungodly because that's out of their nature. But as a Christian, your nature has changed. You're born again. 
You're a new creation in Christ. Your heart of stone's been taken out and been given a heart of flesh. You are made alive in Christ. You are regenerated. And therefore, as a new, regenerated believer, you have new affections. You have new desires. You have a godly heart. You have the heart written inside your heart. Jeremiah 31, 31, God promises in the new covenant that he would write the law in our hearts. And so as Christians now, we have the ability, the desire, the passion, the will to obey God's moral law and to be different. And Paul's saying here, listen, if you claim to be a Christian, if you're, if you're claiming to be a Christian, if you're claiming to be regenerate, if you say you've experienced this salvation by grace and you have a habitual ungodly lifestyle of all these sexual sins and idolatry and, and drunkenness, then then as a Christian, I can't associate with you because you're claiming the name of brother. And Paul here, back in 2 Corinthians, is saying, you know, what, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Partnership. Um, th th these words, partnership. What fellowship does light have with darkness? And the answer is that they're polar opposites. What accord, what harmony does Christ have with Belial? The, the word Belial really is a Hebrew word meaning worthless or wicked. Uh, it was used in what we call the intertestamental period between the writing of the Old and New Testament. It was used by Jewish rabbis to refer to Satan. It would be very similar to what we would call Lucifer. It's kind of a nickname for Satan, Belial. What, what accord does, does Christ have with Belial? What portion, what fellowship do believers have with unbelievers? Again, not that we aren't friends, not that we share the gospel, but these are strong words, relationships, partnerships, fellowships, deep kinship with unbelievers. What agreement does a temple of God have with him? Paul says you are the temple. You're the temple. Now what was the significance of the temple in the Old Testament? The Old Testament, it was that one visible place on earth where God chose to reveal his glory. The glory cloud dwelt on the temple, and in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, was the Ark of the Covenant, God's moral law, and the sacrificial system. And so the, 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 the temple of God conveys this imagery of God's dwelling place, God's glory, and God's holiness. And then Paul says, and then Peter also says this in, in 1 Peter 2.5, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Both Paul and Peter uses terminology that we are the temple of God. So what does that mean? It means individually as a Christian, you're the temple of God because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And it also means corporately as the church, collectively as a body, we're the temple of God. But what it means is that we're the visible dwelling place of God. Where, where is God's glory most revealed? Where is God's holiness most revealed for a watching world? It's in Christians. That's a huge responsibility. Just as the glory cloud was in the holy temple in the Old Testament and it was God's manifest presence, the whole issue now is that the church, God's people, we are to be the visible manifestation of the holiness of God. Think about that for a moment. Are you displaying the glory and the holiness of God in the way that you live? And my biggest concern for a lot of these churches that are compromising, a lot of these pastors that are compromising, Christians, leading Christians to compromise, is that collectively, are, are they helping believers understand the temple analogy? That we are the very temple of God, and our goal is to put His glory on display and His holiness on display for a watching world to see, to be a light to the nations. 
Nowhere in the Bible, let me just ask you at face value, if you were to read from Genesis to Revelation at face value, just read it, without a bias, without any type of um, a bias or prejudice, would you see anywhere in there the majority of the teaching? Would you see a majority of the teaching that we are to compromise, we're to be relevant, we're to do whatever it takes, we're to bring these ungodly things in, we can, we, we can cross these lines in order to reach lost people? Would you see that as the majority, the totality of the teaching of the Scripture? Or would you look at the totality of the Scripture and say from Genesis to Revelation, it's about God's holiness and His call for His people to be holy, to be distinct, to shine like lights in a crooked and depraved nature, world, to walk in the light, to be the spiritual temple, to, to come out from among them, to, to obey the Great Commission by being sent into the world, as Jesus says, but being sanctified by the truth. I think you would see that the majority, the vast majority of the Scripture teaches holiness. And so my biggest concern is when you listen to certain pastors, when you go to certain podcasts, when you uh, look at YouTube clips, when you, when you look at websites, when you, you hear different people's ministries, when you hear different churches doing this and that, and they're trying to be hip, they're trying to be cool, they're trying to reach the culture, uh, they're, they're doing all these things with, with the noble motive, I guess, of, of reaching lost people, but they've, in a sense, lost the gospel. And if you lose the gospel, you lose the power. Here's the irony. What's the only thing God guarantees to bring power, to bring change, to truly affect change? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's not being relevant. It's not being cutting edge. It's not cost crossing these boundaries and trying to be hip and cool. It's the gospel. And the gospel means repentance and belief in Jesus. So you lose the gospel, you lose the power. And so here's the issue. I think that what we're seeing in this younger generation of pastors is some immaturity. It's a spiritual immaturity. It's juvenile behavior. It's juvenile. It's immature. It's you know junior high locker room talk. It's a lack of discernment. It's a lack of confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's really a lack of confidence in the gospel. And that's dangerous. When you lack confidence in the gospel and you lack confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture, you, you, you don't have anything to, to stand on. Now, I'm assuming if I go to those pastors and I go to those leaders and I go to those churches and say, hey, do you guys believe the gospel? Do you guys believe the Bible? They're going to say, yeah. Oh, yeah, we preach the gospel. We believe the Bible. Well, I can say that, you know, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon can say they believe the Bible and they preach the gospel. The question is not do you believe the Bible, do you preach the gospel? The question is, is God's word in its totality both authoritative and sufficient? That's the issue. Any pastor, any church leader can give lip service so they believe the Bible, but the real question to ask deeper is, is it your authority and is it sufficient? It, because it, it will come out in their practices, whether they believe in the authority of the word and the sufficiency of the word. And the second question is, do you believe in the gospel of repentance? Because everything's gospel now. If you don't believe in the gospel of repentance and you don't believe in the sufficiency of scripture, then, then, then you, don't have, you don't have the truth. You're not being sanctified in the truth. Whatever you say about believing the Bible, whatever you say about reaching lost people, if you're not preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and if you're not believing in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture to dictate how you do ministry, and you're not obeying the totality of the law of Christ, being under the law of Christ, and obeying these, the, the moral law of God that's revealed clearly in these passages. I've just, just dealt with just a few passages. Um, and so there's a lot more that we could discuss. We're, we're coming up on the hour mark in this podcast. 
And so there's there's a whole much more we can we could talk about. And um, I know this was more of a heartburn of some things that I've been seeing going on in the church culture, but I felt like I needed to address it because it's just bothered me. And I think as an, an older pastor, I'm not that old. I'm, I'm 44, but I think the 20-something, the, the early 30-something pastors um, need a, an older elder brother, an elder um, pastor in Christ to speak some wisdom and to maybe... Um, call them out on this, and I'm not sure if they're, they're listening to my podcast. I don't, I don't know who listens to this podcast. Uh, I really don't. And, and, and so um, I just pray that if there's somebody in your church or a pastor that you're concerned about, maybe have them listen to this podcast and, and see um, the dangers of, of not living under the authority, sufficiency of, of the Word, and not believing in the gospel of repentance. I really appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity um, again, if you could go to iTunes and give a review and rating, I would really appreciate that. I would love to hear from you, um, especially if, if you're not part of my church family. I know my church family listens to this, but if you're um, just a listener out there, I'd love to, to hear from you. Email me some questions. Email me prayer requests. Uh, you can find all of my contact information at my website, seancole.net. That's S-E-A-N-C-O-L-E dot net. Um, you can find my Facebook link, my Twitter link, and my email, and I would love to interact with you. Uh, we're coming up upon the Christmas season, and so I may not have as many podcasts because of the the, the, the busy nature of this time of year. Um, so um, I'm not sure what my next podcast will be, but um, I sure appreciate you listening. Uh, I really hope that you have a very Merry Christmas. I pray that the Lord uh, blesses you, keeps you, makes His face to shine upon you, and that you have a very Merry Christmas. Again, this is Pastor Sean. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity.